Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, breaking news out of Washington, D.C. The president has officially vetoed the XL Trans Canadian Pipeline, Kel Supreis. We'll go into details on that development. Also, DHS funding becomes a political showdown on Capitol Hill. Are the Republicans picking a fight that they can't win in the public eye, or is this the White House out of touch with political reality? ISIS has taken a Syrian Christian hostage, killed Egyptian Coptic Christians, but are losing ground in Iraq. Did the White House pull a head fake when they announced the strategy for defeating ISIS by giving them a starting date? Also, Bill O'Reilly and Brian Williams, can we believe in mainstream media anchors, or has broadcast news gone the way of the dodo? And big news from Backroom Politics will explain this and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics, believe it or not, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. For how long will it be live? That, that's, up, that's, up to, that's up to Comcast and Blog Talk Radio, and we'll address that later. <laughs> Joining me as they do every Tuesday, to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. I'm happy to be here today. And I'm glad to have you here, too. Bob Hines, former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation and former Ford Chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. Bob, how you doing? Darn good. To my one o'clock, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served under last count four presidents. He is a longtime staffer in Washington Insider, and now a very handsome and well-spoken fellow from the Stimson Center. He is Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, ironically, he is longtime Democratic political operative and bar-certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. He is Dan Lipner, Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Justin. I'd like to thank the Academy for having me here today. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. As long as we don't mention Edward Snowden being a uh, terrorist or something like that, we're good. And I love the dress you had on. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, you, you, you know how many pearls it had on it? I couldn't count. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Uh, we've got uh, several pieces of breaking news right now. The first piece of breaking news that we'll get to quickly is the fact that the State Department has put out travel advisories for the countries of Algeria, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan, advising all Americans to avoid travel at all costs to those countries unless essential. Uh, that, spring break is coming up, man. I, spring break. I know. Because, you know, 
I was thinking about that, thinking about going into like you know Saudi's gone wild. Pakistan in springtime? Yeah. My God, you're killing us. Where are those cruise ships going to land I, now? Yeah. Where are the Congress going to go now? Yeah. My God, the the, the 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 test tube shot market in Islamabad is going to tank. Yeah. And that being said, we also have another piece of breaking news. In a in what is widely realized as nothing less than oh my God you're kidding me sarcasm, the president has vetoed the XL Trans Canadian Pipeline. Uh, it, this is something that he has telegraphed more so than Morse did in his first broadcast. Uh, we can't even amount or count up the number of dots and dashes he telegraphed this move, uh, but it is something that had bipartisan support in not only Washington, but across the nation. It is something that uh, if you listen to industry leaders like the American Petroleum Institute and uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, it provides us with the opportunity for energy independence. Labor unions loved it. It's just that apparently the president has a problem with it. I'm tired of being dependent on, on Canadian oil. Uh, well, <laughs> well, you know what, Dan Littner, since you opened it up, he's Democrat president. Um, just out of curiosity, I mean, this is not a surprise. I mean, it was just a matter of when he was going to do it, and apparently he just went slash on it today. He drew a line in the sand of securing our northern border from Canadian oil. And there's something to be said, actually, on the securing us from uh, the oil from the region, since at least the, the Balkan oil from North Dakota is kind of explosive. Uh, so I'm not quite certain what the deal with Canadian oil. That said, the president said he was going to do it. Shockingly, he did it. And it doesn't matter. This is, has nothing to do with oil independence. Or it's, it, it's a non-issue. I have no doubt that the pending increase in gas prices will be blamed on this, even though we're years away from the oil well, mattering. The oil companies will use it as an excuse to raise no, prices. But, but, but the actual fact of the matter is apparently 20% of, of our oil processing capacity is offline for both labor issues and technical issues in the country. However, that's not going to make it through the, the mainstream press. Alan Moore. So let's give the president credit for following through on doing something he said he was going to do. That doesn't always happen with this White that House. That is shocking. Now, secondly, remember what he did. He said there is a process that is underway. Now, it's been underway for years in which we will make this decision. I will not be pushed into hurrying up my decision. We don't know what his decision will be. All he did was say, Congress, you passed this bill, fine. I told you I would veto it, fine. The process is still underway. I will not be hurried up. He vetoed it. The process is still underway. Some months, who knows when, down the road, we will actually get a final decision out of this administration on whether to allow the pipeline or not. But is this a matter of principle? Or is this just political kabuki dancing that this administration is notorious for? Well, it's both. Yes, right. it's, that, yes, it's a dance. Yes, there's politics. What a, what a shocking surprise. But from the outset, he said, it's not up to the Congress to tell me what I must do. There is a process in place, and it's still going on. And until it's completed, I'm not going to make a decision. End of story. But Bob Hines, I mean, come on, let, let's be real about this. You know, the, the president's been talking about his convictions on this, that he's uncertain of the environmental impact, the environmental threat that it poses. 
Whereas even some of your staunch liberal organizations, labor unions, are completely in favor for it. And they're locked arms with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which has never seen before. Does it make sense that the president would put his, not just his own political credibility on the line, but his possible political legacy when it comes to marching the march towards energy independence? Well, with respect to his uh, legacy, who knows what that's going to be. I don't think it's going to be very much. That's a whole other show. Yeah, yeah but, you, know, the, you know, he said from the beginning that he was against it, <laughs> and I admire him for sticking to his words because sometimes he doesn't. But I think he made a mistake. But, you know, it's going to go forward eventually. There's no doubt about it in my mind. We'll have that pipeline. Uh, Congressman Al, obviously there's not enough votes in the Senate to overturn the veto unless some shocking change happens in the next 24 to 48 hours. Is is there indications that you see that the president's just going to stand firm and let this be a problem for the next administration? Can he hold out that long? I have thought from the very beginning that the president would play this game and then ultimately accept the pipeline. Uh, I think there's all kinds of political reasons to do that, as well as political downsides on the, on the Democrat side of the political equation. But what troubles me about this is I think he's gone too far to be able to get back now. If he hadn't done this, uh, then maybe he could have done what I was proposing. Dan Lipner? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Particularly based on the, I want to wait until the study is done and the process is complete. Dan Lipner? Uh, I actually kind of dis I disagree with that. Since uh, David Axelrod has been doing the rounds talking about his, his, his book and giving us a little insight how the president's mindset goes. And I, I have a strong suspicion that the veto could go through, the, the veto has happened. And the, he might very well approve the pipeline later on. There are enough issues in play, and, and it would seem that the president is more of an academic than a politico. And the politics of this seem pretty straightforward, and what Justin's analysis is absolutely right. However, there are other issues at play for the pipeline that are legitimate, that aren't really getting talked about, and also that there hasn't been much talk about in, in the national press. There have been a multitude of pipeline breaks, including one that broke and polluted the Missouri River. I mean, the, the, these are real issues that we need to be paying attention to. This is not without cost to the environment and, and parts of the environment we truly value. But I mean, in response to that, I mean, the number of oil spills has drastically decreased since the enaction of the Oil Pollution Act of 1990, which came as a result of the Exxon Valdez oil spill. I'm, the, ta I'm talking. I'm not talking about oil spills. I'm talking pipeline breaks. No, 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 and there no, been no, a no, no. Lot in the last what I'm saying three to you is, no, what I'm saying to you is, when I talk oil spills, that includes pipeline breaks. The number of pipeline breaks have decreased rather than increased. I would venture to say that it, they garner media attention because of the XL pipeline. The pipeline that broke, that polluted the Missouri River, is less than two years old, and that's going to happen. But you're talking about millions of miles of pipeline that span this country and span waterways. And that's one incident out of nine, millions of miles of pipeline that are operated daily and effectively and safely. What's, how do you argue that? 
Well, the question is well, the, the paying for it and also how safely. I mean, these things get glossed over as far as the long-term effect once the national media loses their attention. And while I'm not an expert on this, we can, we can talk a little bit about other issues of waterways that do get polluted. And once national media walks away from it, those long-term costs stay there. I, I imagine Congressman Al has some insights on this since wa water is a real issue. And once it's polluted, it does not come back quickly. Well, you had you know, Congressman Al up there in the 2nd Congressional District, even in our friend Congressman Rick Larson's uh, district as it stands. You have uh, at least three major refineries uh, just north of the Port of Anacortes, uh, right there on uh, Puget Sound. They've effectively operated relatively safely with minor incidents uh, and have been a steward of the community. They've been a what? A steward of the community. You disagree? Yeah, and <laughs> it's too long a story to tell now, and it's a little off the subject, but it was an interview I did with the manager of the Shell Oil Refinery in which... We'll <clears throat> talk about that in another show. Steward of the community. No. Uh, I would also point out that, largely due to, to a former senator, Warren Magnuson, uh, you haven't had super tankers on Puget Sound for precisely the concerns. But what I was going to say that's more on the other side, but it also kind of backs up what uh, what you were saying, and that is we had a gas pipeline break uh, in, at Whatcom Creek in Bellingham, really kind of in the center of Bellingham, but it was a park, and there were some kids playing there, and the pipeline broke gas, and it caught fire, and it swooshed down that creek bed like a... Like, like thunder coming down, killed the two kids, and when you drove by it, it looked like a forest fire had been there in this narrow little area. Uh, Rick has since got some legislation that uh, addresses that, but you can't say that pipelines don't break, and I don't know whether it, I'm very comfortable saying, well, it's, it's a cost of doing business. Alan Moore? Well, <clears throat> as long as we're going to be an oil dependent i.e. gasoline-dependent society, um, we're going to have to move a lot of liquid around that has dangers associated. We can do pipelines, and we can do trains, and we can do trucks, and that's pretty much what our options are. We have a system in which there are risks associated with all of these, and there are corporate balance sheets that are dependent upon a manageable level of risk backed up by insurance companies whose balance sheets also are locked into to this. And we have a system that cannot guarantee that there will never be an accident, but that there will be some level of compensation to remediate. If we don't build pipelines, we are going to run it on on railroads, and we just had another yeah. another derailment of a rail uh, of a of a train full of oil. And I dare say, those events tend to be even worse. It all, it all depends on how much and where and so on as as pipeline breaks. If we aren't prepared to have trains and pipelines, then we should all just get bicycles. Or solar-powered cars. All right, Congressman Al. No, Congressman Al first, then go to Dan. Okay. <clears throat> One of the things I don't understand is how we have managed to permit the environmental movement 
to be against everything and never have a proposal of its own that is doable in current technology. I can remember when they were all for wind power. Now you've got wind power, so it actually works. Now they're against wind power. Kills birds. Kills kills birds, birds. kills fishing grounds. And so they will always say, you know, there's some in the future, something down the line, if we'd only do that, we wouldn't have these needs for, frankly, what they're overlooking is ultimately you're going to get nuclear power. But they're going to be against that. They're already against it, but if if you go down the line of all of the options and what have you, not immediately, but eventually, it's it's going to get to the need for nuclear power, and that's going to drive them batty. Dan Lipner. We're back to nature, Al. Back to nature. I I entirely agree with both points. That Alan is absolutely correct, as is Congressman Al. But when we talk about all these issues, we don't talk about any of it responsibly as far as what the actual costs and exchanges we need to make for tra- and these trade-offs. Part of the issue with wind is wind doesn't blow where the people are, and then you need to build power lines. You know what those power lines are? They're ugly, yeah. and then people don't want to do those. And that, Then there's also the arguments, though mostly unproven, of the electromagnetic ra- radiation that comes off the, 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 the high, high power lines, and the, the issues go on and on and on, and actually having a response Responsible adult conversation about these issues is not what we do in politics in this. Bob Hines. That last line is one of the best ones I've heard in a long time. We really need to have a conversation. It's so ridiculous. Now, what would we like? If, what if we decided we're not going to have any oil pipelines? No pipelines. Where are we going to get fuel? What are we going to do? We go to, we go to trains, trucks, and barges. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, all electric, great. all nuclear. It's all, yeah, yeah. The reality is, the reality is, the safest way to move oil is a pipeline. Much safer than trains. Much safer than trucks. Much better. Uh, Congressman Al, I, I would love. To, I think it's imaginary, but I would love there to be a sensible conversation. I don't think you can get the electrical industry or the petroleum industry to be sensible, and I know you can't get the environmentalists to be sensible. The fact is, I am still waiting for the environmental movement to come up with some rational and realistic proposal of how we meet the energy needs of this country. It's being delivered by Santa Claus. Alan Moore, when when we look at you know the environmental impact, the one aspect that seems to elude any discussion coming out of the White House is the number of jobs that this creates. Those against the pipeline say that that is a red herring, that you're talking about 11 or 12 sustainable high-paying jobs and the rest are just temporary, whereas advocates for the pipeline and even non-industry advocates say that the ripple effect turns into billions of dollars for the economy. Construction jobs are temporary. Yes. All of them. Come on. Wait, 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 wait. No, we've been, we've, we've been over that. If you're building infrastructure, you build it, and then you move on and do something else and start utilizing the infrastructure, whether when you start it's roads or pipelines or schools. Um, and, and, but, but this is not about jobs per se. That's great if there are some jobs. If there's, if there's 10, 15,000 construction jobs, I don't know, and then they go away, fine, and then there's a handful of people who, who, who manage it. This is how you build infrastructure, but 
what you, you we, we need the infrastructure to move fuel around. I, I, I do want to say, although this has become heavily politicized, I think it's a mistake to sit around here and say, when are we going to have a serious discussion? I think the serious discussion is operating in parallel with the politics. The State Department has a major role. Don't ask me why, because I've never yet been able to figure out how the State Department <laughs> is in the middle because, of all because of these it findings. It originates in Canada. I understand. I understand. It just seems to me bizarre. We can we can let State Department get it up to the border, and then we can turn it over to to, uh, to internally looking enterprises. Um, but but notwithstanding that. The State Department has the responsibility. They've had an interim report. They're continuing to study. They're obviously nervous. They're under political pressure. But also, but some very serious people there and on the Hill, believe it or not, are trying to figure out the merits. And we're sitting here saying, folks, we have choices we have to make. And they know that on the Hill, but they also want to score political points. So it's like everything we ever do in politics, we combine fact and and serious policy with the politics. Dan Lumner, do you agree with Alan Moore that through the white noise and the background noise of everything that's going on in the discussions regarding the SL pipeline that there are serious applicable discussions about coming to some sort of resolution going on about this? Or is that more rhetoric? It's more rhetoric. I mean, I, I, I wish what Alan was saying were true. And amongst the the intellectual elites that is that conversation is being had but that doesn't include the conversation being had with the american public the conversation being had at them and the dog whistle politics being had with them and is not actually engaging in a substantive conversation the president's energy uh, plans that went through with with the stimulus package we heard about solyndra and that that failure but we don't hear about the 88% of successes through the same plan because it was, it was dog whistle politics talking about kickbacks and whatnot to political insiders, where in fact, overall, what the Energy Department did there has been wildly successful. But that's not the conversation. And Alan, and I like to point out, was also part of the dog whistle politics talking about Solyndra. You can't have it both ways. I will be happy to talk about Solyndra. You're a nonsense, 88%, blah, blah. The whole idea that the government has has got the kind of capability to to spend hundreds of billions of dollars intelligently in new ventures is crazy. The fact that it's worked most of the time. A true conservative. Wow. It's like, we, I love love the, the democratic notion that, oh, let's let government do it. Because government people are sm- so smart and so capable, let's turn it over to them. Whether it's revising health care, what's the worst that can happen, Alan? Out what's, what's, what's the worst that can happen? We can make it to the moon. We can build an interstate highway system. You can have rural electrification. You could have national telephone systems. You could have all of these things, and that's right, the government was pretty involved with all of them. And we had rural electrification because the private sector wouldn't do it. It wasn't, it wasn't economically adequate for them. Where things that don't make economic sense, sometimes government has to step in. Things that make economic sense, and even, even things that don't, we look to the private sector 
either to do it or to or to be the the contractors who who do the activity. We now, are broadcasting I, on a on a system that was developed by the Pentagon. I mean. The, the private Long sector. Talk Radio was developed by the Pentagon. DARPAnet is what the internet oh, is based on. Okay. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you, Vice President Al Gore. Hey, you know, Bob, in talking with uh, in talking with some folks inside the industry, uh, inside the petroleum industry, they tell me that look, this thing's going to get built. This thing's being built as we speak. They're going to build this thing. The only thing that they need the approval from Congress and the president is to actually start the flow of oil. This is not going to stop. Does it make sense for the president to come to that realization? Or again, does he kick the can down the road? Well, I... Congressman Al, you go first. Go ahead. <laughs> well, uh, I... <laughs> I already indicated that I thought that he maybe would turn tail on this, but it occurs to me that that if if the really way to get this, he's got to veto the start of the oil. He's not going to be president then. So he may indeed uh, veto this and keep his position. And somebody on the line is going to have the decision that we're all arguing about him making. Yeah, yeah. This, this decision can be made this year, next year, the year after that, year after that, year after that. The world changes. Our energy needs change. Our energy production changes. So, so. But, but remember what he did here. He he vetoed a bill that he said, "Don't write a bill forcing me to do something that is not yet ripe for decision." I'm going to veto it. It passed. He vetoed it. And now we go to the next step. And when he finishes the analysis, he decides then, okay, I'm not doing it. Bob Hines, last word. Or I will do it. No matter what goes on in the next year or two, whatever it takes, that pipeline is going to get built. It makes, no, it, it, it makes common sense to build that pipeline, move that oil through the United States. That's, it's, it's a smart thing to do. And I suspect that it will happen. And I'd be very surprised if that, if five years from now there isn't some oil flowing from Canada through the trans oil. Dan Lipner, last word for you. Uh, it probably will get built, and I'm just would like somebody to say why is somebody more concerned about moving North Dakota oil in pipelines rather than Canadian oil in pipelines? Because the North Dakota oil keeps exploding on railroad tracks. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. Yeah. It's safer on the. Thank you for that last yeah. word. I think it- do we know it won't move in the XL pipeline? Uh, there, actually, I do know a little bit about this. Some of it is, but it's not not enough. And real question as far as well. Why wait, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. On, the, on that aspect, I I know talking to people that are close to the pipeline operation, they've said that there are going to be unloading facilities. That's correct. That they will that will interject. They, it'll be it'll be a spur pipeline. The plans are already there for them to include domestic North Face oil. That had to be fought for, though. It, but it's still it's still in the plans now, is, is my understanding. But needless to say, we'll let that be the last word. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about another chicken fight here in D.C. That is a little bit more serious. It's a VHS funding bill. It's become a political showdown on Capitol Hill. We are literally 72 hours from the shutdown of DHS. Is this really a is this really a battle that Congress can afford to have? We'll talk about that in three minutes. This, believe it or not, is still 
Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, Shelley's Backroom has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, Seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, Thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is still Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to talk about another fight going on here in Washington that is now a national security issue. That is the DHS funding bill being debated and voted down in the Senate and the fight going on between the House and the Senate and the White House. And between the Senate and the Senate. 
And and that too. That is correct. That is correct. Basically, everybody's beating up each other over the DHS funding bill. Here's the situation. The DHS funding bill that was sent over by the House to the Senate had conditional protocols in it that would take away or disable the president's uh, executive orders regarding immigration. That has made Democrats very, very angry. As such, this now has put a hold on funding for DHS. Effective midnight Friday, the Department of Homeland Security will lose funding and essentially 30,000 employees, including those in the Coast Guard, including those in uh, Customs and Border Protection, Transportation Security Administration, FEMA, uh, U.S. Secret Service, all will be furloughed or those essential personnel will be on the job but unpaid, which is going to suck morale out of the life of an already troubled morale at the Department of Homeland Security. Let's look at the overarching effect on this, and I'm going to start with uh, Dan Lipner. Dan, this is really now a national security issue. If you've already got a bad morale situation at a department when they're getting paid, imagine those guys that are responsible for the enforcement of laws and the protection of our homeland and borders not getting paid to do that job. How big of a deal is this? I'm sorry, Justin, I couldn't quite hear you. I'm a little bit tone deaf. No, wait, that's the Republicans in Congress. Uh-huh. Oh, uh-huh. That, we, there's no demagoguery here. We don't play that game, Danny. No, this is pretty tone deaf. Uh, I'm the, 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 the shocking use of, of this issue, especially with the, the new alerts on, uh, on uh, the Mall of the Americas in Minnesota and other domestic targets, I, it, it is incredible to me to play chicken with Department of Homeland Security over this issue. Uh, that said, yeah, p- people, the most employees at Homeland Security are essential, so they, they have to show up paycheck or no paycheck, but not all of them necessarily have deep bank accounts that they can draw on. So the question is, how long does this, does this standoff occur? And for an agency that's huge and has the morale issues at play for, as I understand, the, the, the Hill reported, that the narrative that's taking place amongst Republicans on the Hill is that, well, these guys are going to show up anyway, so it's not a huge deal, which I can just imagine how well that is going over with the civil servants at DHS. But that's just my thought on it. Alan Moore. Yeah, garbage. Um, You can't play chicken. You can't call it chicken unless there's two cars going down the road at full speed heading to each other, and you wonder who's going to turn. That's not what's going on. Mitch McConnell, the majority leader of the Senate, has said, we are not going to have a shutdown here of DHS. John Boehner has said the same thing. Now, therefore, let's, let's before we call everybody tone deaf and stupid and playing chicken, let's wait till we get there. If we shut down DHS, I will be flabbergasted. I do not see that happening at all. What McConnell has done is he suggested, let's separate these two issues. We'll have a we'll vote a clean DHS bill, and then for, uh, today, tomorrow, and then Friday, we'll have a vote on defunding the the immigration stuff. The Democrats haven't bought into that, and the House has not said that they like that. 
But if that doesn't happen, and that seems like there's a pretty good chance that that will happen either this week or maybe next week or the week after, they always have the fallback of saying, okay, kick the can down the road another week. And I do not believe that DHS is going to be defunded, unfunded, that funding will stop. I don't see that happening. I can be wrong, but but I think for that that rather than to say these guys are are tone deaf or playing chicken, they don't want that. The Republicans know that whatever the the the, the details or facts or excuses or explanations, Republicans will be blamed. They will lose that issue on responsibility. They don't want that. That's well, precisely the point. What in the world was John Boehner thinking when he used a poison pill? Now, maybe a lot of Americans don't know what a poison pill is. But well, that's, go, go over that real quick. That's yeah. where you have a piece of legislation <clears throat> that uh, will probably pass, and you don't want it to pass, so you add an amendment that is going to create a whole bunch of antipathy to the bill so you can kill it. Boehner knew that the Democrats would simply not go along with 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 the poison pill that he added to the thing. He had to know it would bring us to this point. Now, maybe he's going to chicken out. Uh, Mitch McConnell is doing the sensible thing, but it's the thing that Boehner could have done to begin with. Bob Hines. I would say that the... The possibility of the of the of the Homeland Security bill of the bill funding is absolutely going to happen. There is no way there is no way that any elected official who's got a brain in his head or her head is going to vote to close down the security systems of the United States, so to speak. It, it's so easy. For the other, for the Democrats, if the Republicans were going to do something like that, to just blow them away, and it's not going to happen. But then, why did John Boehner do this in the first place and set this up? The Republicans are still getting lots of headlines about they are going to kill the bill. Now, you you guys may be right that they won't ultimately do it, but the memory of the public is going to be that they damn well tried. At least the House did. Why did they do that? Alan Moore. So I'm a little less harsh on Mr. Boehner here. He has his own challenges inside his caucus. They were able to move a bill weeks and weeks ago. What the thought was that bill would come to the Senate. It would be brought up. It would be open to all kinds of amendments. It would never, never, ever emerge from the Senate in the form in which it arrived. And it would, in some form or another, pass out, and then it would either go to a conference with the House. Might have been a clean Senate bill. Might have been a probably wouldn't have been totally clean. Would have been in terms of just the funding. Would have had a few little things on immigration. They would have come up with something. The president would have joined the conversation and said, "Nope, I'm not. I'll veto it if it comes out like that." Well, maybe I could live with this. Maybe I could live with that. It didn't happen that way because the the Democrats in the Senate decided, you know something, we're going to squeeze these guys. And they did a very effective job because they 
stopped this bill from even being debated and said, well, that's what the Republicans always did to us, which was actually not true. What the Republicans would do is they wouldn't go along with bringing up a bill where no amendments would be allowed. McConnell said, bring it up, bring on your amendments. And the Democrats said, yeah, I don't think so. We're not doing that. And they did it, said no four times. McConnell basically said, I can't do anything else here. Please, House, give me a break. Wasn't this foreseeable? Not, no, I mean, the, sen- the thought was the Senate would take it up, have a bunch of wild and crazy votes. McConnell ever thought Oh, yes, he did. Of course he did. Because he, the complaint was always, we're not going to bring up bills when no amendments will be allowed. And what surprised him was, and there, there, there are a number of Democrats who, among other things, don't like the, the executive order on immigration. McConnell thought, we'll bring it up, we'll fight it out, we'll pull some of this stuff out, we'll, work, we'll get something, hopefully, out of here. We don't know quite where it'll go. What was not expected was what occurred, and now they're trying to scramble to figure out with the time running out, what do we do now? Dan Lipner. Well, that's one of the, the only things the Democratic Party is actually definitively good at is when, and I, I will go with the phrase again, the Republican Clown Car Caucus, which is what is actually being highlighted here. Um, that is, in, I think Alan is right that this will probably not happen. However, the rhetoric is out there, and the Clown Car Caucus of the people pushing this, that we're going to fight this tooth and nail regardless, we don't care, hell or high water, and and the Democrats in the Senate sitting on their hands going, you can talk now, keep going. And politically, it, as far as the communications approach, brilliant. Congressman now. I still don't understand why all of this wasn't foreseeable. Uh, look, if you're going to if you were going to add something to this bill as a writer, you don't pick something that is sticking your thumb in the president's eye. The president's party is going to fight you on that. And you're, you, you point out that there are a lot of Democrats who really don't have a problem with the immigration thing, but when you, when you attack the president in this fashion, you're going to have problems. I mean, Boehner is not a stupid man, but I do not understand for the life of me why he did this. Dan Lutner, he's got an impossible job. The, the the clown car caucus is while not not quite as powerful as it once was, it's still loud as hell and they have they have voice and they have backing. They cannot be ignored. And the only way around this would have been if Boehner gone with the getting rid of the hazard rule which never actually existed and gone with a actual bipartisan bill, ignoring the clown caucus and setting the whole thing aside. But that's not that's not how things have been laid out. Bob Hines. It's going to get solved. I don't know how it's going to get solved, well, but it's going to get solved because we are not going to fail to continuing fight. resolution. Yes. Well, yeah. no, no, the funny thing something, about it is one of the options. Oh, one of the options is the Senate Majority Leader has, in fact, said that he is willing to introduce a clean bill without the poison pill into uh, into South, into the Senate voting uh, process, and then once it passes, which his indication, his whip vote, or vote whip, has come up with the fact that it would pass clean. If it's clean, then that will go to the House, and then Boehner's got his own fight to deal with, but he's confident, apparently, would also pass. That would give us at least the funding bill. There's another option being discussed 
in the House that would give a temporary, temporary funding bill that would basically carry it over for two weeks and allow the fight to continue for two more weeks and we'd have to go through this again two Fridays from now. So it, it still sounds to me, Congressman now, it's politics as usual on the Capitol. I do not understand how Boehner ever conceivably thought the Republicans were going to come out looking good. For example, everything you've just said about how we this bill may pass will not be understood by the American public. They'll say it's back to, you know, craziness going on. <clears throat> and it wasn't necessary. I mean, if I were a Republican, I'd be really upset with John Boehner. Well, let's not forget what Dan Lipner. Let's not forget how this whole thing started, which we've actually managed not to say during this conversation. It's the lack of a comprehensive immigration reform bill being brought up in Congress at all. Well, that, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Let's also let's also we realize that. Well, wait a minute. Let's also re remind yourself that this is also arguably the president's got some heat on this because he took in what many feel overstepped his boundaries by creating executive orders that weren't necessarily and in his purview. And Congress could take up a comprehensive immigration reform, which the president has said explicitly, I would like Congress to do this. But Dan, you're to, talking to just about place my executive order to actually have legislation cover this. But Dan, you're talking about a president that has had about as much communication with the Hill as I do with Zimbabwe. It just not happening. There is no communication co that we can see. Co-equal branches of government. What else do you want? You have the Speaker's office and you have the Majority want. Leader in the Senate. I, I you have both chambers. Oh, good what Lord. else do you want? You're living in a dream world. Alan Moore, help me out here. Well, Bayer <laughs> lived in the dream world when he started all of yeah. this. No, playing, <laughs> playing cat and mouse with the national security is what this amounts to, and it's wrong. I would argue... Al, I would, Al, Al, this thing passed a month ago. I don't, I don't even know the date. It, it, when, when they passed it, we didn't have the court case down in Texas decided, and we didn't know that, that, that the Senate wasn't going to be able to take it up. And then time passed, and time passed, and time passed. It, it, let me say this. John Boehner, I think, probably could have guessed pretty accurately that he, at the end of the day, this wasn't going to be in the law, in the, in the, in the funding bill. But you move the process forward, you kick it over to the Senate, there going to obviously have to be some big negotiations. The Senate ran into this really interesting uh, response from the Democrats, and we haven't talked about it, down in Texas, the judge said, this whole thing is, is, is being put aside because the president has, has overstepped his bounds. Now, that's being appealed. And it may make it to the Supreme Court. We don't know what happened. It provided a wonderful opportunity, in my judgment, for the Republicans to say, okay, we think we like what this Texas judge decided. We're going to let the courts decide that issue. Now we can go ahead and fund DHS. Dan, Dan it hasn't, it, but it, it, it hasn't played out that way. But we're gonna. It, it's it's gonna happen this week, next week, the week after. It's gonna be messy, and the public is not paying attention. Not true. That that you're Dan talking Lutner. about which parts of the public aren't paying attention, and which parts are. Keep in mind, we are. This is a long game we are playing here, and the Latino vote, which is what's going to be in play in 2016, which the Republicans have still inexplicably continuing 
to hurt themselves with this meaningful and growing demographic for the for both parties. Th this issue is what this whole argument is about. And by pandering to, again, the Republican clown car, as opposed to talking about comprehensive immigration reform, it is what needs to be talked about. This is actually, I mean, politics at play is not inconsequential. It's also coming into play with presidential politics since it's already started as far as the on the Republican side of who wants to be running for president. And everyone wants to talk about how strong they are on fighting, on, on, on locking down the borders and immigration, as opposed to a real comprehensive conversation. Well, Dan, I, I, I don't disagree with you on what you're saying about comprehensive immigration reform. The, the reality is we are dealing with an electorate right now that is uninformed and uneducated about the reality of the importance of clear immigration. They don't care right now, but when we ship out all of the migrant farm workers back to their native countries and we start paying $35 for a bag of oranges or $5 per tomato, that's when this stuff gets really real because it starts hitting the pocketbook. Nobody talks about that aspect in the immigration fight. There's got, there is compromise. You can come up with a temporary farm worker program, which many Republicans and Democrats said they would support. You could come up with some sort of expedited worker visa program that both Democrats and Republicans had said they would support. Who, DACA, who's stopping DACA, it, Justin? Nobody on the left is stopping any of this. Who is stopping it? Well, who's stopping it is the president by invoking his executive orders and no, taking it no, oh, come no, on, no, come on. No, the guest worker program was introduced by George Walker Bush when he during his presidency and that was when the backlash when in his own party started in a matter of 6 months the 30 years work the I'm talking, party wait, 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 hold on hold on hold on hold on Ronald Reagan started the outreach and did a great job in yeah. 6 no months question. when George Bush introduced the guest worker idea is when the backlash truly started. No, no question. But the reality is today, all right, I'm talking today, Tuesday, February 24th, that this moment right now, nobody truly gets that argument. What you're hearing is the white noise that comes out of South Texas, the crime that happens when, these, when the immigrants, the illegal aliens come over across the border and commit criminal acts. You hear of you know, the undocumented workers that are taxing public schools, public health, and they're not paying their way through the program. There's all kinds of, that's the noise you hear. When we talk about comprehensive immigration reform, it's a third rail that really nobody really wants to touch because it's the fear of, I'll get unelected. It's not nobody who doesn't want to touch it. That's incorrect. Part of the reason Eric Cantor is now ex-congressman Eric Cantor is because he touched the rail and exploded. Oh, no, no, that, no, 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 no. He's, he's ex-majority leader Eric Cantor because he didn't do a good job in his re-election. Let's be clear about that. Alan Moore. Yeah, the, the, the president made a decision, a couple of decisions relating to immigration that, that were highly political and and let's not forget that little history. When the effort to do comprehensive reform broke down, the president said, well, I'm going to take, he, in, in, in many public speeches, he said, 
I'm only the president. I don't have the ability to overturn laws. I can't, I can't do some of the things you want me to do. Then he concluded later that he could do some things, promised he would, held back, didn't do it when he said he would. Right after the election, he said, I'm doing it. Now, he had the ability, we've talked about this at the time, to say, okay, Congress, this is the executive order I intend to issue on a date certain. He didn't do that. Let's work on this. He said, I'm doing it now. He was cramming it in their face, a very highly political act. Nobody's going to convince me that 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 this was that that he was frustrated. He ran out of time. He'd had he'd spent a couple of years talking, threatening, denying, and then finally did it. It was it was good politics. It 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 ticked off the Republicans. It it infuriated some of them. Others who were in the for, you know been pretty active and in the forefront of trying to do something comprehensive realized you didn't have a majority in the house that was willing to do that to take up the of uh, 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 house republicans uh after the senate had passed a comprehensive bill in the last congress so so we we are suddenly faced with this with uh, this highly charged political challenge and it's a mess right now. It'll get sorted out. There will be some political ramifications, um, and we'll see what uh, what those are. But 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 for the moment, in terms of the immediate argument, are we going to shut down DHS or not? I don't think the public is Congress, paying much attention unless it actually shuts. Congressman now, we drifted a long ways from what the original thing was, and that was. <clears throat> whether it was appropriate to have this writer put on a bill that is designed to fund our national security. That's the question we started out with. We have talked a lot about immigration. I think a lot of that conversation is very useful. It has nothing to do with what we were talking about. It's, uh, well, it has to do with the grander topic of what we're talking about. Well... No one expected that this was going to get the kind of comprehensive thing that you're that you're talking about, and I think we do need to go do that, but not attached to this thing. This question, gentlemen, if you had to present the case to a group of, of say, a hundred citizens at a town meeting, would you rather have my argument, or would you rather have? the very elaborate justification that you guys have been going through and try to convince them that that will work. Take my word for it. It's going to pass. Horse feathers. I mean, it's just... Boehner didn't need to do it. He did it anyway, and he is jeopardizing national security. If they do get it passed, as you guys suggest, great. But uh, I don't know... Trust them, but count the cards. Congressman Al, I, I, I disagree with you. Surprise, surprise. Well, surprise. no, no, no. I agree with you on, on, on some things. I, in this instance, I disagree with you. Because of the fact that putting this on Boehner's shoulders, I think, is unfair. Well, he Speaker did it. Boehner. He did it. Who, who, if he didn't do it, who did it? Whoever, sponsored, whoever wrote and sponsored the amendment. No, the Speaker... Agreed to stick it onto this bill. Can, can we remember the history? 
there was an effort Once to... Once you go to the history, you've lost the audience of 100 people out there. But, Al, I don't... No, no, no. We put it in the context. You said, would I rather have your argument or something else? I don't even know what your argument is. What, John Boehner's a fool and made a mistake? Is that is that your point? And that and then the, the 100 people are happy? I, I don't get it. The the There was going to be an effort to hold I'm up sure. all of appropriations. And they said, nope, we're going to fund 11 of the 12 bills. We're going to hold out... DHS because they're the ones who have to enforce these new rules that are tied up now, with the immigration. are getting higher. Well, no, no, no. no but Lingo, Lingo, I'm out of the weeds for a second. Lingo, let me go populist. Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, Republican, uh, of Latin American descent, has come out as as late as yesterday and continues his argument that, hey, America... You've got to realize that deporting 12 million undocumented immigrants in this country is unrealistic, quote-unquote. So, what I'm saying to you is... I mean, I agree with it. But it's not the Republican versus Democrat fight, I think. No, it's Republican versus Republican in this. The clown car is what's breaking the Republican Party. Alan Moore? <laughs> could, could, I, could I propose a rule for the table? Sure. That the term clown car can only be brought up twice in a session. It's now five times, and we're all, not even halfway through. You know what? I will inv- I, I, I will take moderator's privilege, and the word clown car will not be used the rest of the show. If you are, you've got to time out. I agree with you. you got to come clown up with something car. new. I mean, you're just doing that out of spite. I, I, no, I'm not. I'm exercising my First Amendment rights. Oh God! Here we go. Oh, now you become Tea Party. No, I don't. I don't tread on Al. Com car, com car, com car. You know, with that, I'm, with that, I'm taking a break. When we, when we come back, we're gonna. You're killing me. Um, we're uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a serious topic, and that is the uh, continuing uh, rampage of ISIL, ISIS, whatever you want to call it, the Islamic State. Uh, as of yesterday, a, a female American was captured in Nigeria by an organization that may or may not have ties to Boko Haram, but seemed to have Islamic extremist ties. We'll talk about that and the latest coming out of the Middle East. This is Backroom Politics coming from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or... Whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches, they've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. 
port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, this is Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit right now about a serious subject. We're going to talk about the continuing uh, rampage, the continuing efforts of ISIS to spread Islamic extremism throughout the Middle East and throughout uh, larger, now a larger part of the global regions. Uh, several developments have happened since we were last on air. Uh, since we've been on air, the, uh, the Iraqi National Defense Force has managed to push ISIS back out of at least the latest count coming out of the Pentagon, about 20 villages in the uh, northwestern part of that country. At the same time, the Peshmerga have been fighting battles and maintaining a hold in the Kurdish regions of Iraq. 
Uh, however, ISIS has gotten more aggressive and more violent. Uh, we didn't talk about, excuse me, we, we talked about the Jordanian pilot that was burnt alive. We talked about the, the loss of an American missionary in Syria. Uh, she, uh, she was brutally murdered, and there's still questions about that. We're now being told that, uh, that ISIS has taken and murdered uh, somewhere in the area of about a half dozen, or I'm sorry, about a dozen and a half Coptic, Crips, uh, Coptic Christians out of Egypt. And as of yesterday, ISIS has taken a Syrian Christians hostage. Uh, this morning, it was announced that a female, mur a female missionary in Nigeria was taken by uh, what is now being called Islamic extremists, some saying it is Boko Haram, expanding their influence into a region which is now going towards the coastline of Nigeria. At the same time, the Obama administration, in a very bizarre move, managed to give the entire football playbook to the world and announcing its mission to defeat ISIS and basically giving it the Lego parts instructions to do so. Number one, um, when we look at ISIS, Alan Moore, I'm going to start with you. You, you got uh, strong international experience and in, in, in understand this a little bit. When we look at ISIS, it seems that they're becoming much more aggressive and much more violent in their push into these regions. Uh, they're being more aggressive when it comes to taking hostages and murdering them. Is this a sign of maybe desperation? They're doing it as greater fear will get them greater will as they move forward? You know, <laughs> I appreciate the endorsement of me having some international experience so I understand stuff. I don't understand these guys at all. Um, uh, but 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 I, I, uh, I, I think that there's one thing that's pretty clear. They're trying to, they're trying to create a mood of fear in the areas where they operate, and there's nothing more fearsome than watching family and friends just being murdered before your eyes. It doesn't have to be on, on, on YouTube. It just has to be local. You know, we see a handful of killings uh, on television, which are horrifying, and we don't see the thousands of people killed constantly, not just in that part of the world, but in Nigeria, in, in uh, elsewhere, where where terror works. Now, having said that, trying to be provocative and and talk on TV and and show this stuff internationally makes me wonder something else. These guys are savvy enough to figure out how to use social media. Are they also trying to draw America in on the ground? so that we can be embarrassed and humiliated still again. I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know that that would be the for certain outcome. But, and it's not just us, but, but European countries who backed away, backed away, backed away, but are, but are watching people murdered. Um, it, it's, it, it's really curious, and I, I, I don't think it's just, them being absolutely 
stupid and grotesque you're saying and non You're saying this is calculated. Well, it, it may well be calculated. I'm not prepared to, 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 to dismiss it as insanity. It's evil, but it may not be insane. And you're saying, well, what? okay, besides frightening the locals into submission, um, what else are they doing by being so provocative by putting these horrible things uh, up on the internet, and I'm and I'm just beginning to wonder whether there might be some other motive in addition to local terror. Dan Lintner, we saw the the murder, and we're going to call it that, the murder of a female um, American missionary in Syria, and the American response was by all indications minor at best. It seems now, with the latest video coming out of Boko Haram in Nigeria and in Kenya, that uh, they are now doing videotapes calling for Muslim extremist attacks on public areas, including and specifically the Mall of America in Minnesota um, and other shopping malls and other public areas. They called out the Westgate attack as an example of what can be done it seems that every time that the that the American government does not take some sort of definitive action, that it almost empowers and emboldens groups like, um, uh, you know, AQAP, Boko Haram, and other Muslim extremist organizations. It emboldens them to say, you know what, if they can do this, so can we. They're not going to touch that. How do we defend against that? We don't take the bait. Uh, Is this baiting, do you think? Absolutely it's baiting. They're desperately trying to turn this into a Muslim world versus everyone else kind of fight. And in fact, what it is, is a Muslim world versus the Muslim world fight. Muslim extremists versus non-Muslim extremists. And which was heartening with the, the Jordanians taking the steps they took, the Egyptians taking response to the death of the, at the to, to be not death, the murders of the Egyptian Coptic Christians uh, that the Egyptian government t- chose to take a stand on. That this is the this is a regional issue that they desperately want the United States to be brought in as the great outsider, as the great Satan, yet again. Where it's really not our fight. This is this is dare I say? How, how is this not our fight? It's there, not here. It's, it, it is an eternal argument with, within Islam as far as what direction it would like to go. At the, the best argument I heard as far as describing, and this is part of the, the president who also took heat for his lack of calling it Islamic no, no, extremism. His, but his conference on, on, on extremism, and, and somebody else used the phrase, call, calling this Calling ISIL Islamic is like calling the Klan Christian. It, it, it damages the core of the religion by saying that these folks are who it's actually representing it. But, but Bob Hines, taking that into consideration, which I don't necessarily disagree with, but, you know, the KKK, you know, the, 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 the Nazi Party of America and those extreme folks, they rarely invoke religion as much as 
the the extremist terrorist murderers that we're seeing on videos coming out of Syria, Iraq, and now Nigeria. When we see that, to say that you know it, that this is not Islamic extremism when they invoke the name of Allah and what they do. Does that seem does that seem almost like an oxymoron to you? Or are we being naive not to call it what it is? Well, I think maybe uh, we're reluctant to call it exactly what it is. But, uh, but it's, go ahead, Al. No, no, no but go ahead, well, Congressman Al. What the president says it is, is people who are extremists and terrorists who happen to be Muslim. But they're not Muslim terrorists. In other words, I, I, I see a distinction, and we probably would need a linguist to come in here and sort all that out. But, but I, it seems to me he makes a good point, and I think it's a minor point. I don't know why it's caused all this hoorah. He's essentially trying to convey the idea that we, the United States, are not against the Muslims and not against the Muslim faith. And that's the distinction he was trying to make. Who disagrees with that? Uh, and, and somehow, in some people's minds, you got to call them Muslim terrorists or you're being weak on terrorism, and I think that's nonsense. And, and I, I want to I say this. I, I'm, I actually agree with Congressman Al on this, Alan Moore. You know, they're murderers. They're thugs. They're terrorists. That's all they are. By invoking the name of Allah, that, that seems to be an internal Islamic issue, but it becomes our fight, or am I, am I naive in this, it becomes our fight when they start killing allied military officers, American missionaries, and threatening, and our, thre malls. threatening our malls and videotaping five-year-olds getting ready for jihadism. I mean, am I being naive in this? Well, <laughs> you're always naive, Justin, but <laughs> maybe not necessarily in this particular one. Um, they... They are acting. We know they're 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 members of a of an offshoot of a particular religion. They're acting in the name of of, of that god. I think that that Bob had it exactly right here. That we're sort of reluctant to 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 attach a religious name to these kinds of behaviors because the great majority of people who who observe who those uh, practice those religions are appalled by this just the way the rest of us are great. um we we are we are looking for a new name that that we, there, there's no reason for us to offend on the one hand uh, on the other hand it, it it we 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 jump through these rhetorical hoops and we look a little absurd when we when we dance around so it it there, there there's no simple answer as to why America cares, we care about stability around the world, we care about protecting the innocent around the world, and we care a whole bunch, whether we like to admit it or not, about parts of the world where oil is produced and oil moves around. And even though America has reduced its own national dependence on imported oil. Many of our we, allies have not. We are very dependent on a functioning international economic system that relies really heavily on Middle Eastern oil, not just in Europe, but in Asia and elsewhere. So we we do have an economic interest in in some stability that that 
the, around this large oil producing area, as well as the, the basic moral notion that, that when innocents are being killed of any type, whether they're Americans, Europeans, locals, um, uh, others, we care about that. How much we care, that becomes an interesting uh, political question. How much we care means how much are we going to invest in trying to stop it in, in money and material and, and in, uh, in, in an American military. Dan Lipner. Excellent. I want to follow up on that because Alan's absolutely right. Uh, the economics of it, and the answer is yes, we do care. And we, we, we tend to care a bit more when it's associated with oil. When it's not associated with oil, we mysteriously care a little bit less. And we, we, we will weep when we see the, the, the horrible pictures and then forget about it when we turn the TV off. Um, but my question would be, uh, the Chinese care an awful lot because they, they, they need oil with their growing economy. They have a military last I checked and, and don't have former uh, treaty obligations to pr prohibit them from acting. Uh, the Germans, as we recently found out, one of our strongest NATO allies, at least economically strong NATO allies, uh, have soldiers training with black painted broomsticks because they cannot afford, this is a post story earlier this week, because they, they're not fully equipping their military. The United States should not be carrying the full load for the rest of the world unless the rest of the world is going to pony up at least cash and they should also be ponying up actual military. It's well, Happy Cannon one, that one noted this weekend one would argue the Turks have a pretty strong army that is actually in region fully capable of taking wait, on wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me let me let me jump on that though for a second though because you know when we look at the Jordanians literally unleashed hell fury in air assaults which they have a strong air force that's about it using American made and American sold F-16s the King Abdullah was literally here talking to members of Congress and leadership, as well as the president, and he said, quote-unquote, quote-unquote, the Jordanian response will be earth-shattering, and they stood up for that. We also had an increased air support from the, uh, the United Arab Emirates, and there are players in the region that have cowboyed up with military force and military support. We're not saying that we're going to burden this all onto our own shoulders, but I think if there's any reason now for us to realize that, number one, and we're going to talk about this in, right in about two seconds, but number one, boots on the ground have to be at least considered an option. We don't have a choice in this. Not American boots on the ground. Why not? The Turks are right there. Admittedly, the Turks have a, they have a border problem right now with the refugees. Yes, and the army can do other things rather than just keep refugees out. Uh, there, there are other issues and other ways of solving this. It does not need to be American ground forces. And I tend Congressman to, Al? I tend to believe the, the, the theory that they really want us. I mean, Alan was expressing, and I thought uh, elucidating it very, very clearly, best I've heard. Uh, that, that one of the things they may be interested in is sucking us into uh, a, a situation that we can't win. Uh, so, so, 
so if if these other people will provide even if necessary boots on the ground and all of that we may end up funding most of it but i think that is preferable to sending troops there which gives them the opportunity to talk about big bad united states but i, but I think one of the things alan Warren, i'll start with you on this one that surprised me last week was the president's announcement of basically the entire strategy and almost giving them an exact start date and time of an assault on ISIS by a U.S.-led coalition. Is, is this a head fake, or is, or is a, why would the administration put that out and put that burden on a newly installed Secretary of Defense in Ash Carter? Beats me. Um, I'm scratching my head over it, uh, and I haven't read detailed uh, reports on this, but we we gave an unusual amount in a, in a background conversation with a military man uh, briefing uh, quite a bit of detail on 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 schedule and and, and plans to go take back the, the town of Mosul uh, and and some other activity in the region, and then along the way also happened to mention that 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 one of the camps to train uh, uh, Syrian rebels was going to be in Jordan, infuriating the government of Jordan because apparently that when we when we set some of these facilities up, we agree that when they are ready to acknowledge that they're hosting one, then we can talk about it. All of that happened in a briefing. It's almost like. Uh, uh, the the briefer went off the reservation, but that that's I'm not saying that happened. It 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 was just so extraordinarily detailed and and apparently inappropriate. I can't figure it out. I I think it was an anomaly, but maybe maybe we're really 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 smart, and there was some great plan here, and it's a massive head fake. So. We announced this, but then the enemy thinks, well, that they they wouldn't be telling us that much if they were going to do it that way. Maybe they're going to do something else. Oh, but wait, maybe this is a double fake. Beats me. Dan Lipner? I don't know either. <laughs> Bob Hines. I don't want to see you know a lot of American boots on the ground any more than anybody else does. But strikes me that we need to be sure that we are doing everything we can with respect to, re to resources, which means to me intelligence, funding, air support, and almost anything else you can think of. And I don't have any problem with uh, American soldiers, trainers, and uh, you know maybe some special forces and things like that. I think I think we have got to play a role in the Middle East to help our allies. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, these guys, these ISIS and the rest of these guys, are they're very, very serious about what they're after. Dan, Dan Lipner. And one very, very serious and important point. After seeing what ISIS did to a Jordanian pilot military once they got their hands on him, what do you think they would do to a single American soldier, sailor, airman, or marine if they were to get their hands on one of our people in uniform? 
taking that a step further, how would the American public respond to that? This would how be I think they would. endless warfare. And that is something that cannot be taken lightly. Lightly, you can't at all. Because what... But let me, let, me, let me stop you there. Let me, let me ask this question, though. What is the difference between the horrific murder of somebody in uniform or a volunteer missionary in country? I would expect, and there are, and, and, and I go back to the days of Ronald Reagan, uh, even Bill Clinton, uh, and both Bushes, that you kill one of ours, especially a an innocent civilian missionary, you're going to feel the full wrath of the U.S. force against you. That's not true. Why is that not true? No, no, people, no, missionaries. Uh, 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 Peace Corps volunteers, people, I mean, it's not a good good that it's happened, but have been murdered throughout the world. It happens not quite all the time, but it, it happens periodically, and I'm sure Alan knows more about this than I do. And yes, there has been an American response, but it has it, it not let loose the dogs of war. Yes, there's been an appropriate proportional response. If This would be something different. Yeah, I, more, I, I, I agree. I, I, I agree with Dan that, that if and what what I don't know is how hard they they are trying to get a couple of soldiers. I'm guessing they would pay a lot of money. They they like to 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 hold people for ransom. We don't typically pay ransom. That's a whole separate issue. And it came up with with this young woman. Um, again, the circumstances around her death are, are are still not clear. She was not tortured like the other people were. We just we don't know. But right. but I agree with with Dan that 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 when we have an American in uniform making the the sacrifice on behalf of all, the entire country to to serve overseas and put his or her life at risk um there's there is a there's there's a higher duty and there's therefore a higher level of emotional response and these guys know that and and so it'll if if it, it's inevitable that they're going to shoot somebody out of the sky they're going to get a hold of somebody somehow somewhere um and and we may have to test this which which upsets me i, I wanted to say one word about turkey uh in the in the in turkish Turk, turkish army is is powerful and strong and they're very effective fighters and they, it's been very frustrating to America that they have not stepped up as much as we would have liked them to. And their president has, acted, has been acting a little erratic, too. He's turned very, very harshly against Israel, and, and uh, he's had some harsh things to say about the U.S. But one of the reasons that they have not stepped up, because it is on their border, after all, is they don't trust that America will be there for the long run to support them. What they don't want to do is say, fine, look, come on, America, we'll use your equipment, we'll, we'll, we'll use your intelligence, you guys will su- provide backup support, we'll put our guys in, and then six months from now, a year from now, you'll say, eh, we're withdrawing, but have at it, guys, and we'll, and we'll send you a check every month. Um, uh, we are we have, we're we're proving to be not the most reliable ally over long term over the long term. So even our historic allies uh, are being super careful and super uh, hesitant to just say, "Oh, fine, you'll pay the bill. Great, let's go." It's 
No, we need we need more than that because we've seen what you've done elsewhere. Bob Hines, last word. I couldn't agree more with Alan. I think that the, I think that the United States has has not done what should have been done. There are a lot of things that we haven't done that we could have done. We should have done because what we're what we're doing over there is just enough to to keep us you know keep our hand some at least close to the game but we're not doing we're not doing the stuff we could do and I don't mean boots on the ground but there's a lot of things we could do that that would be a stronger message than we can than we had not yet sent and I think we made a major we're making major mistakes because if ISIS and its friends begin to fundamentally cause upheaval, fully upheaval in the Middle East. We are going to be in a much worse situation than if we just keep on doing where we are today. Better that we get in there and protect our friends and show that we're good supporters and we're good people who will fight with them and deal with and help our and help our friends. Unless we do that, I think the Middle East could just become a a, a quagmire for us. Oh, and that is short, not a good thing. In short, where is Harry Truman when we need him? Uh, I love Brother Harry. Okay. That being said, we're going to take a break when we come back. We're going to talk about Bill O'Reilly, Brian Williams, and heck, even Secretary McDonald. They love embellishing, and it's become a problem. Have have we? Do we still have a belief in the mainstream media anchors, or has broadcast news gone the way of the dodo? We'll talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Backroom, go to www.shelly'sbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties.
And we're back here live at Chili's Macro 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've ever heard of, Back to Politics, Live on Blog Talk Radio, for now. Uh, we're going to change gears, and we're going to talk about the recent flubbery, the recent inaccuracies, the recent whatever you want to call it, by two key figures in mainstream media. We'll start first with Brian Williams. Brian Williams is still on a what is now becoming more and more indefinite suspension from NBC News after it was revealed that several of his stories that he would publicize on the uh, on the air and in speeches around around the country were highly inaccurate and may have been inflated. It started off with his helicopter taking live fire in an RPG while he was in country in Iraq covering the invasion back in the early 2000s. It is then exploded into Katrina issues and several other other inaccuracies in his stories. Next, we fast forward Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly has made comments that he was in combat theater down in the Falkland Islands during the British Falkland War, uh, during the British Argentinian War for the Falkland Islands. There are many now that question he was even in theater during any of the aggression down in the South Atlantic. That being said, today, CNN reports that Secretary McDonald, the Secretary of the Veterans Administration, made an offhanded comment to a homeless veteran that he was trying to relate to and may have inadvertently stated that he was part of a special forces brigade or unit or had some connection to special forces, which this homeless guy did and now is being vilified by the media. First question, and I'm going to start off with Emmy Award winning broadcaster Al Swift. Al, this seems to me like the biggest amount of garbage that the mainstream media could ever glom onto. They've got bigger stories to cover. Why is this such a big deal? It's a big deal because they're playing the game of uh, if we do this, the people will watch. You know, and I've always said, yeah, people will watch, will slow down to see a dead body alongside the road. It doesn't mean that they want you to spread a lot of dead bodies alongside the road so they can look at it. Uh, that's not justification. Uh, I think the three that you raise are all very different. Uh, First of all, the, the secretary is the secretary. He's not a news person and what have you. And I think that's and it's the weakest case of the three, I think. <clears throat> Secondly, I don't really care what, uh, what's his Bill, name? Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly did, you know. But he's, he's not an anchor. He is not traditional. He, he is no follow-up to Walter Cronkite. <laughs> uh, he's more of a follow-up to... Joe McCarthy. How do you do that? Oh, good Lord. <laughs> All right. And, and, and with regard to Brian Williams, I think there's no question but what he has damaged his credibility with the viewing public. If he comes back, and we don't know what he and NBC and all of that are doing, but if he comes back, then we'll have to watch the public and see whether they still trust him or not. Uh, if NBC allows him to come back. But uh, that's a different thing 
as well, I think. Bob Hines, you were a longtime executive at NBC, yep. former vice president of government affairs. You were very close to the NBC News operation back in the days of John Chancellor and leading up to Tom Brokaw and then uh, even to Brian Williams 10 years ago. Uh, it seems to me that nightly news was a cornerstone of their journalistic credibility. Absolutely. As, as, as far as everything that, you know, you had the Today Show, you had all the other NBC News programs. Yeah, right. but, but, but NBC Nightly News was the mainstay, the highest watched national 630 news broadcast uh, with a incredibly highly rated or highly regarded anchorman. Two questions for you from your experience at NBC. Number one, or three questions. First question is, how much damage has this done to NBC's credibility at NBC News? Is this is this a big is this a big gaping hole in their credibility right now? Um, it certainly tarnishes the network. There's no doubt about it, uh, and that's one of the reasons that uh, Williams was moved off for six months or whatever six weeks, whatever it is, and he may or may not be back because the one thing that the news business has to be you have to be, you have to be careful that everything that you're doing you you, you it's based on information that's that is solid and strong and you can count on it i mean obviously there are things that happen that you know you you think something happened and it's not quite that way and that's one thing but when you sort of conflate yourself as bigger than you know in in in, a, in your past life in some way, it destroys part of the credibility that you bring to the program. And if you are the number one news reporter and the the, the anchor man for your news program, that's a very serious problem because it makes people wonder. You know, what do we think? What are we watching this guy for? Can Can Brian Williams come back? At all? Is, is Brian Williams going to come back at all? I don't And I, 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 I don't know if he can or not. I think it really comes down to the, down, you know, the longer he stays out, probably the less likely he is to come back. But uh, I also think that, I also think that he, he's got to make up his mind is, is he? Does he wants to do it? Is he able? Is he going to be able to do it? He's got to look in the mirror at himself and say, you know, what am I going to do about it? Can this? he ever regain journalistic credibility? Well, I think that one of the things he's going to have to do at some point is sit down and talk very seriously um, to to someone and explain how this happened. He's got to cleanse himself if he can. I don't know that he can. Uh, it would, I think it would be unfortunate uh, if he didn't because he's damn good at what he does, but that doesn't change the fact that he has inappropriately and wrongly uh, stated things he, that are not true. You, you, but, you know, we, we look back at, at, at other questionable events that anchors have dealt with. The one that comes to mind for me, Alan Moore, is Dan Rather's mugging the What's the Frequency Kenneth incident uh, back in, in what was that the the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, uh, and there was questions about 
the events surrounding his alleged attack in Midtown Manhattan. Um, Dan Rather escaped that, but down the road, questions of his credibility came up after a 60 Minutes uh, piece that he did that had questionable sourcing itself. That was the key thing. But that was the key thing, correct. But Dan Rather, About President Bush's military, military record. Correct, correct. It, it, but it seems that Dan Rather is still on the scene, still has some sort of journalistic credibility. Um, and Congressman Allen wants to address this. I may go to Congressman Allen on this. Rather had a few items. Yeah, there were a few items. But it, it seems that it, it, is, is this just now a matter of the Scorpions literally stabbing themselves, seeing themselves just to get what bleeds leads? Well, look, Rather self-destructed when he did that and it's to, to say he didn't die and didn't disappear is about all that happened to him in that in that he is a very very marginal watches. player uh, on cable television he was a very big deal and he's not anymore um, Brian Williams I don't know what what happens of course is the guy's making 10 million dollars a year He's a big deal. Everybody knows him. Everybody bows down to him. He uh, he also uh, had a had a good sense of humor. He started showing up on late night talk shows, and uh, and he had a tendency, but it was only a tendency that people have been looking for a handful of times where he exaggerated his own role in something. It wasn't systematic. Um, it crept into uh, the nightly news almost accidentally, but it didn't. But but I don't think that that was the only thing. He can't go on Dave Letterman and t- and, and and make comments uh, that are that appear to be true, and then later say, yeah, but that was I did that on Letterman. I didn't do that on the nightly news. His credibility has to follow him wherever he goes. Every public speech. Absolutely. It's it's one it's one thing if he's sitting around a living room and joking with some friends, but when he's in any kind of a public uh, sphere, he's got to be very careful. He got careless. And it turned out that it wasn't the first time that he got careless. And then there's this notion that the Germans have this word, I don't know how to pronounce, called Schadenfreude, whatever it is, where you take a certain perverse pleasure in the, in, in, in the, the, the mistakes or harm that happens to others. Um, it, it's, it's very human, and it's kind of sad to acknowledge. So here's this Mr. Powerful, Mr. Good-looking, Mr. Rich, everything going, and then he trips up, and then he's tripped up a second time, and then a third time. Um, he's going to take six months off. I don't know. It it will depend in part on what he does in the meantime. It will depend a lot on how his substitute does at NBC. I understand that, 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 NBC's, that NBC's viewership is up a little bit <laughs> since, since he stepped down. That, that creates a, uh, uh, an, an interesting problem. Just... Just one thing about O'Reilly. He never said he was in the Falcon Islands. He said he was in a combat zone. He was in apparently a big old street riot in Buenos Aires trying to cover the story on the Falklands, which was offshore. And tear gas, rubber bullets were shot. He said, and apparently wrote in his book, and there were people killed. Well, that's the biggest. He, he apparently never said he was in the Falklands. So that, I think, has is, is, is been settled the question is, were a bunch of people killed? Can you call it a combat zone if it's a huge street riot relating to the Falklands? I don't know. I've been in a few uh, uh, scary situations that 
that that whereas I was as scared uh, ca- as, I, as I wanted to be. Careful, your credibility. <laughs> I know where I was as scared as I wanted to be, and to call it combat zone. You know, it, 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 the devil's in the details. So, but also as Al said, Bill O'Reilly, he, he was, along with slandering him, um, he he's not Which an was the fun part. He's not an anchor. He's he's a sort of a controversial observer. He had called himself a journalist. Well, of course, no, he was a journalist with within with CBS down in Buenos Aires during the Falklands War. So he's got some journalistic history, but but he he's not a guy. He's controversial. Oh, right. He says exaggerated right. things. Dan Lepner, well, a few things. One, Bill O'Reilly, a few years back, and got called out in Al Franken's book. Uh, Bill O'Reilly claimed he won a Pulitzer. He did not indeed win a Pulitzer. He won a Polk, which I don't even know what a Polk is, but I do know what a Pulitzer is. They're rather, they're rather different. Um, uh, but back to the Polk isn't as well known, but it's a re- well respected. Right, right. Uh, but it's not a Pulitzer. And uh, and I, I have no doubt that mysteriously forgetting and toward the upward trend of the of the value of the award is not uncommon, which is what all these things are. Very rarely does somebody down mistakenly downplay uh, with, when they're puffing themselves up. But to the earlier question that we asked was why do why is the press doing this? Because it's easy. It's easier than real journalism. As far as we playing the the gotcha points on this and the going back to the Brian Williams issue, <coughs> the initial reporting and the clips are out there of the of the Brian Williams issue when his helicopter was grabbed from the sandstorm, the initial the Ford helicopter that was actually shot at and hit by the RPG was all accurately reported. When there are actually contemporary issues of plenty of things being inaccurately reported, the focusing on the gotcha issues on these individuals is where the mistake lies. And we're not actually getting into a real conversation uh, on what the value and responsibility of American journalism it, is. It, you know, it, it, and that brings up a good point. Bob Hines, you know, I, 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 I've been watching CNN throughout the whole Brian Williams issue, and it almost seems that they're taking great pleasure in pigpiling on. And there's one individual that I want to call out. That's Brian Stelter. Who is the uh, the uh, anchor for their show Reliable Sources, which covers journalism and news and media uh, for CNN on a Sunday program? But it seems that Brian Settler, every chance he can get, is literally digging and digging and digging and trying to find inaccuracies in everybody in media except those at his own network, CNN. It almost seems that they are literally trying to kill each other and eat their own at a time when I remember where there was a certain honor amongst thieves in journalism, and that would never have happened 50, 40 years ago. I've got no problem with the media doing to the media what they do to everybody else. (laughs) Okay? I love it. And uh, I I would remind you that probably the guy in Washington, D.C., who said no comment most often was Ben Bradley when he was editor of the the Washington Post. Uh, And he got away with it. So that doesn't bother me so much. The fact that they are doing what Dan was objecting to, that they are taking minor things and blowing them up and ignoring more important things, I think is absolutely valid. Does 
as broadcast news on the way of the dodo is is new media outlets such as backroom politics maybe the future I don't know I don't know the God answer. help us all no I don't know the answer to that but I do think that first of all we asked the question is Brian Williams going to come back that's up to NBC and they're owned by Comcast so I wouldn't feel good if I were Brian Williams but I think I I think if he were allowed to come back he would be able to reinstate himself with the public. I think that. I think that because of his personality, because of his delivery, a bunch of reasons that maybe shouldn't be used, but I think that would happen. Bob Hines? I would agree with that, what Al is saying. I think think his reputation uh, long-term is good. I think think if he um, explains the mistake he made, I think people will accept that, but uh, he'll have to be careful. I think I think he can survive, but it's I think it's wise for him to stay off for a while, and uh, and uh, but does it it, it does uh, it does remind people that you've got to be damn careful about what you how you present yourself and make sure that you haven't uh, conflated your your wonderfulness because uh, people will very quickly. Uh, you know, cut you down, and it becomes public, and you really, you really get a very hard time recovering. Well, I'm going to let that be the last word. I mean, you know, the, ironically, the fact that you were the vice president of government affairs for NBC and the executive up at 30 Rock for such a long time, that gives us great perspective. Thank you. Appreciate that. Alan Moore, go ahead. Just one quick thing. The, the suggestion was made that O'Reilly had claimed that he won a Pulitzer, and I was just, he may have, but I did a quick search for that found no reference, and I've seen nothing in the stories uh, uh, in the last couple of days about this. So I would just take with a grain of caution right. with a grain of salt that he actually ever did that. Right. Because if he did, it would be all over all these stories. So it was years ago. So. Oh. I don't care. That doesn't that's it's it. Right. This goes back to my lazy reporting thing. But once, no. you, once you say you had a Pulitzer, you, you can't come back from you that. You can't come back yeah. from that. That's, yeah. like, that's like saying I've won an Emmy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that being said, uh, I, we have, I wonder we have, if, Al, if Al really won that Emmy. Oh, we should dig on that. Ed Asner handed it to me. Can, can, can you bring it in? <laughs> can, you, can you bring the Emmy in? And he was the head of news for, <laughs> for Mary Tyler Moore. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Journalistic credibility. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't believe in our journalistic credibility. Where's Ted Baxter when you need him? Exactly. Clown car journalism. Clown exactly. segue. Clown segue. So that being said, uh, normally this would be the part in the show where we talk about our favorite part of the show, Tell Me a Story. But we've got big news. Uh, this broadcast will be the last broadcast of Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we've been with Blog Talk Radio for now four years, going into our fifth year. But as the case when you grow, we have to make changes. And we are going to be, starting in two weeks, going to a new format and a new program and a new network called Spreaker, uh, which is uh, connected with the Clear Channel organization. The, uh, the reality is it's going to be more user-friendly, it'll be easily accessible, and it'll be easier to listen to in all formats, whether it be live or download as a podcast. Uh, 
we hope we're going to be putting out press releases. We're going to be putting out announcements. We're going to be talking about it on our website. We're going to be talking about it on Twitter. We'll be reminding everybody how to get a hold of us. But I urge all of you that listen, whether live or downloaded, keep an eye out for our tweets. We're going to be tweeting a lot at Backroom Politic. Uh, you can check out our website. We'll put up updates here in the next few days. Uh, www.backroompolitics.org. Uh, but this is going to be a new era of backroom politics. It's going to be fun. It's going to have content that we're going to have some daily written, more written content by those around the table, those who are going to be newly part of our organization. But it's an exciting time for backroom politics. We think that this will give us the, the, the boost that we need to make it definitely the best political talk show you've never heard of and the best journalistic organization that you'll never see. But we're excited about the move. We're excited about the uh, new agreement with uh, Spreaker. So we hope that you'll follow us. But we appreciate all that Blog Talk Radio is done, but time to grow, time to move on. So that being said, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Alan Moore, Dan Littner, I am your moderator, Justin Russell. We will be dark next week as we make the change over to Spreaker, but in two weeks we will be live again from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? A new place to be. A new place to be. Yes, I love it. Folks, have a great couple of weeks. We'll see you live on Spreaker Tuesday in two weeks. Bye-bye.